Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. We've never met, have we? Good. Okay. What I want you to do is imagine a playing card. I've got a deck of cards in my hand here. I'm going to give them a shuffle. What I want you to do is imagine I'm fanning the cards out. I am fanning the cards out. Imagine, I like to imagine just taking one of those cards, picking one out at random and looking at it. Okay. Just keeping it in your imagination. That's it. Hold it up to the audience. The imaginary audience. That's it. Okay. And now put it back inside the deck. There we go. I'm going to give them a quick shuffle. I'm in my back. And I'm going to put them down onto the table. Now then, just visualize your card. Think of it really, really brightly in your mind. Think of the color. Think of the shape, the suit. Think of the number. I'm going to see if I can read your minds over the radio. Flash podcast. Your card was the... Two of diamonds. Amazing. How did I do it? I did it very, very well indeed. For those of you who thought of the two of diamonds, you will think that's the most brilliant trick of all time. For those of you, the other 51 people who listened to that trick, you might uh, not think it's very impressive. The point is, I'm obsessed by magic. I love magic. I've done it for quite a long time. In fact, when we were thinking of doing a podcast series about the history of inventions, we came up with all kinds of ideas on our long list. Things like the invention of the bicycle, the printing press, the aeroplane, that kind of stuff. But right at the top of the list, number one, I wrote the word magic, underlined several times in big letters with an exclamation mark. And that's because when I first moved down to London, early 90s, and I was acting and I needed some extra work to earn some money. And I thought, well, I could learn plumbing or something like that. Plumbers earn quite a bit of money. That might be quite good. But where I lived in Clerkenwell, just at the bottom of Rosebury Avenue in Farringdon, there's a shop called International Magic. And I used to go past it every day. And it was it's quite a weird shop. It's still there, if you know it. It's got all kinds of exciting, extraordinary, strange things in the window. And it's quite dark inside. And I was always a bit scared to go in because it looked slightly foreboding. But one day I plucked up courage to go in and there was this strange figure behind the counter with wild black curly hair and a top hat. And it was Jerry Sadowitz, the comedian. If you don't know Jerry Sadowitz, you may have remember last summer the story he was doing a 
theatre show in Edinburgh and it got cancelled. But he was also, as well as being a brilliant comedian, he is a brilliant, brilliant magician. And I walked up to him terrified and he looked at me sternly in the eye and said, what do, you, what do you want? And I said, I want to learn magic, please. And he said, okay. And he turned around and he pulled down a book on basic card magic and gave it to me. He said, have it start with there, come back, let me know how you get on. Uh, so I took that book away and I became absolutely obsessed by it. And I learned how to do magic. And it was at the time that David Blaine had become quite successful doing his street magic. But the interesting thing about those early David Blaine tricks that we saw that seemed so fresh and so new, they were based on really, really old traditional tricks. And that's the interesting thing about the history of magic. You see very often the same tricks coming round and round again with a new spin put on them by new magicians coming up with new ways of presenting. And I became really good and I made a a sort of mini side hustle career out of doing close-up card magic at corporate events and table magic and that kind of thing. I haven't done it for a long time, but I'm still absolutely in love with magic, particularly the history of of magic, because it's absolutely fascinating. And there's one book in particular that I had. It's called Hiding the Elephant, and it's a book about the history of magic, right back to the very beginning, by Jim Steinmeier, an American magician and historian. And of course, when we started doing Patented, I thought, oh my goodness, wouldn't it be amazing if we could get Jim to do the invention of magic. I thought, what trick really sums up magic, that sums up the ethos, the philosophy, what magic's all about? And I thought, well, actually, it's probably the most famous magic illusion of them all, the soaring the woman in half. Anyway, we got in touch with Jim, and he said yes. So here he is. I'm amazed you're here because you're kind of a legend. I've known about you for a long time. I actually met you many, many years ago. You won't remember. I met you at the Magic Castle. Oh, really? Yeah, but sometime in like the mid-90s, I think. I used to go to the Magic Castle. I'm not a magician, by the way, but I got really into magic a while ago in my salad days when I was young. And I met you at the Magic Castle. I used to go there a bunch of times. Did you used to run the Magic Castle? You did something at the Magic Castle. No, no, no. I was on the board and I was president for two years. The Magic Castle, if you don't know what I'm talking about, listeners, it's in Los Angeles and it's a club. Is it a club? It's kind of a club for magicians, and magicians perform there. All the greats have performed at the Magic Castle. It's in Hollywood, and it's funky. It's a private club for magicians, yeah. And as part of the formula for it, there are show places for the magicians to perform, and then the public is invited. They can be brought in by other members. So, of course, what it does is it provides magicians a place to work with their acts, and then it gives them really devoted audiences who want to see it. So it's kind of a great formula. It's kind of a funky place. I remember when I went, I was so in awe and I wasn't allowed in. They had to give me a tie at the door because I didn't have a tie and you had to wear a tie. It's the only place in LA where you have to wear a tie. (laughs) I know. I was like, I don't need to dress up for this. My friend Reed, who I went with, was like, no, 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 you absolutely have to wear a tie. Anyway, I met you there and I can't remember who else I met there, but it's an honor because the other thing I know you for, you wrote a book called Hiding the Elephant, which is a great book on the history of magic. And it goes from the early days. And it's a great book about history and also the kind of philosophy of magic, about what magic is and how it works. But I wanted to get you on this as well, because obviously this is a show called Patented and it's about inventions. And I think people outside magic don't really know, I don't think, that magic is full of inventions. It's full of gimmicks. It's full of people coming up with creative ideas to design illusions. 
The one that we were going to concentrate on this one particularly is the famous soaring in half illusion. But before we get onto that, you yourself, you design tricks, don't you? You design tricks for other magicians or illusions, I should say, rather than tricks. Yeah. All my career, I've worked on developing material for other magicians. And what that means is everything from some little procedure for a card trick to big constructions, wooden props that are wheeled out in Las Vegas acts. And I've done a couple of versions of the song in half trick. I think famously worked on making the Statue of Liberty disappear. Was that you? Yes, for David Copperfield, yeah. Can I just, before we get on to the soaring and half trick, do you actually hold patent it's for those tricks? So you come up with an idea for an illusion that would work, that would involve mechanics and design, and then that is something that you can copyright, as it were. Is that how it works? So here's the thing. I do have some patents in this field, but they're not necessarily representative of my most successful illusions. And what that is, is that patents are not very well suited for the field of magic. Patents don't keep secrets. Patents are a terrible way of keeping secrets. And the idea of a magic trick being patented, it's just not a great system for that. It was a great system for Edison, and it was a great system for industrialization and for commerce. It's kind of a terrible system for magicians, because what it does is it makes available instantly what the secret is. And that's exactly the problem that we see where we really see that happening is in the sawing in half. That was like the total meltdown disaster of invention and patents and people desperately trying to protect something that they almost couldn't protect. And the other thing about it is that there's this very weird thing in magic where you kind of say, well, how much of it is an invention? You can't get a patent for just anything. You can't get a patent for an idea. You can't say my idea is to saw somebody in half. That's not patentable. What it was in the 1920s was it could be protected by the National Vaudeville Association. It could be protected as an act. So one performer, Horace Golden, registered the name, sawing a woman in half, sawing through a woman. He registered all sorts of variations of the name in an effort to protect it. Jim, just before we get onto that, can you just set the context for us a little bit? So where are we? When did this trick first appear and who came up with the idea? Let me counter you and go back further. Okay, good. Yeah, nice. So here's what happens. Is it any invention for a magician is part a mechanical thing, you know, where a hinge is, where a secret door is, where a trap door is, and how that arrangement is made. And that's where it gets very close to an invention. But also, magicians are famous for doing things with almost no special apparatus. They might just have a box that has holes in the right places, and they're handling it in a certain way on stage and creating an illusion. And then magicians are also famous for having very, very simple inventions and wringing a maximum amount of presentation out of them. In which case, what's important to it is the idea, sawing a woman in half. You put that on a poster and it brings people into the theater. And so you say, well, how important is that particular arrangement of trapdoors and secret compartments in a box? And how much is the idea of sawing a woman in half? And then you come up with your own secret of how to do it. Because there have been dozens and dozens of different methods to do it over the years. Where would you start with it? I mean, obviously, if it's been done before, when non-magicians think of magicians' apparatus, they tend to think of that one. Right, exactly. So where that starts officially is in December of 1920. And a British magician, really inventive, commercial, smart British performer who had wrestled the music hall system to his advantage, named P.T. Selbit. His real name was Tibbles. Percy Thomas Tibbles, T-I-B-B-L-E-S, and he reversed his name basically and became Selbit. But he was a very successful British music hall performer. And Selbit was set up to kind of roll out the latest Marvel. You can see that what Selbit wanted was he wanted to strike gold with something. He wanted to produce it. He wanted to put together a franchise of performers who would go across the music halls and make money with it. And then he'd retire it. And then he'd go on to the next idea. 
So why sawing a woman in half? What was it about the sawing and the woman in half that was the appeal of the time? Well, so the first problem is that there's a description of an illusion of sawing somebody in half in the magic literature that was written in 1858. A French magician, Robert Dan, in his memoirs, which had been read by every magician, it was popularly one of the great books of magic. And certainly in the 20s, it was read by everyone. And in those set of memoirs, he claims that his mentor did this trick in the very early years of the 19th century. He performed it for an Ottoman ruler, and that was his claim. Was there a description of how it worked? He did give a description of it. He took a person and put them in a box, sawed it in two, and when he opened up the boxes, two twins came out. So he sawed the person into two people. And we now know that that description was made up whole cloth. It's a fantasy. It was made up by the person writing the memoirs. This performance assuredly never took place. He talks about people that we've since found didn't exist, and it's part of a fantasy section in the memoirs that he wrote about his early schooling. And we think that he used it as an example to kind of demonstrate how grand magic was in the past and how he was aspiring to return to that. But we don't think that it was actually ever performed. So here's the question. If in 1920, a magician says, I have a great new idea to saw somebody in half, how many magicians hold their hands up and say, I read that too? I knew that that existed. I had that same inspiration because I read the book that described that and was thinking about doing that myself. So Selbit was the guy that did that. Selbit was the guy who said, I have a great new idea for an illusion, and it's sawing somebody in half. And what's interesting is is that it was, in Selbit's show, kind of horrific. It was kind of a very clinical operation, almost scientific. It involved a wooden box that was clearly had been made the day before the performance and just kind of hammered together. He got a committee up from the audience to examine it all. He took a young lady, had ropes tied to her wrists and her ankles and her neck, and she was tied inside the box with the ropes protruding outside the box so that the committee could hold on to the ropes and keep her extended inside the box. The box was sealed shut. He used a number of blades to penetrate through the box, and then he sawed the box into two pieces and separated the pieces and demonstrated that she'd been sawed in two pieces. So it was interesting because part of its success was clearly not just sawing a woman in half, but that it was done in this scientific, mock horrific way. And that was exactly right for the time. It's interesting that, you know, one of the things that Selbit did to publicize it was he challenged the Pankhursts, famous women suffragettes, to get inside the box. (laughs) You're kidding. No, no. What did they say? Well, I don't think they responded. They had other things to do. (laughs) Let's say that. (laughs) That notion of challenging the new woman and saying, you'll be put in your place you're going to be an object of this trick and you'll be summarily executed on stage in front of an audience is not an insignificant thing to say. And I think also points to how at a certain moment, these illusions were really interesting in a kind of mythic way to the audience. And I'd also say that horror was a big thing. Right at the same time that this was happening, there was a French theater, Theater Grand Guignol, that brought its shows over to the UK. And Grand Guignol inspired a lot of horror movies later when films grew up. Grand Guignol was the famous French theater of horror where gruesome acts were portrayed on stage, tortures and bloodletting and murder and rape. And it was famous for bringing audiences into this little theater in France and then having them hyperventilate as they walked out because it was so intense and so horrific. And the Grand Guignol Theater opened in London right around the same time that Selbit was performing this illusion. So you can see that there was an interesting, in the news, in the popular culture, taste for this sort of horror. 
And reviewers commented on how Selvitt's illusion was very much taken from Grindlin Yol. What was the reaction? Because I seem to remember reading, maybe it was in your book, I remember it wasn't just the soaring in half. For example, whilst the audience were queuing up to go inside, ushers would come out with buckets of red blood and pour it down the drains as a sort of symbol of the show that had gone before. And there was a big buildup around it. The trick was logically, automatically propelled by publicity stunts. They would bring ambulances to the theater. Nurses would be standing by in the lobby in case someone faints or in case the saw slips. As people were queued up outside the theaters, people would walk out of the stage door with red stained water and would pour it down the gutters in front of hundreds of people who were trying to get in to see the show. So, of course, all it took was little touches like that. Part of the charm was making all those promises to the audience. It's all part of the illusion. It was a huge sensation. It was a, it, probably in part because of publicity stunts like that. It just was the right title at the right time. And Selbit had a really deft touch with all those things. And it was really successful for him. I think that's the thing about lots of magic. Yes, you have the trick, but it's the way that you perform around the actual bit of magic, if you like. And having ambulances parked outside and people screaming and people pouring fake blood down the drain is as important. You are 100% right. Magicians always know this and magicians talk about this, how important the presentation is, how important that personal touch is and how each performer brings an individual touch and an individual presentation to it. The flip side of that, that magicians also understand, is how unbelievably simple and basic all these tricks are. The public thinks that they're watching some amazing scientific discovery, some incredible deception, which gives you this optical illusion. And of course, those tricks, when you actually understand how they're done, you're instantly deflated. And that's why magicians guard those secrets. Well, exactly. When magicians say, oh, I'm not going to tell you the trick, it's not to hide the secret. It's to avoid the disappointment. Because as soon as I show you how I make the hanky disappear in my hand, the magic is dead. And people don't want that. Right. Magicians don't guard the secrets to protect them as vital, important things. They're protecting the audience from the secrets. Because the first thing an audience would do is be disappointed. You can't believe what a magician could do with a rubber band and a piece of thread. But you don't want to tell an audience that that's what it is. It's why you should never do a trick twice. You know, if you do a card trick, the natural response from an audience is, oh, do it again, I want to see it again. But of course, if you do it again, they know what they're looking for. And of course, they'll see the simplicity of how it works. Did you know that some of literature's greatest characters were real people. It's so fascinating, isn't it, that some of the Three Musketeers are also based on real soldiers. That Sir Walter Raleigh wasn't all that he's been cracked up to be. Chemist, poet, scholar, historian, courtier. He could have been great in all these different things. And that if your name is Dudley, you better watch your back. For the Tudors, each one of them took something from the Dudleys, either by working with a member of the Dudley family, or of course by having one executed. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and I'm learning all this and much more, bringing you not just the Tudors, twice a week, every week. Subscribe now to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. 
Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I want to just get onto the mechanics of it. You gave us a lovely description of the illusion, just a plain box, the saw, everything else. From you as someone who designs illusions, how revolutionary was it? So not so simple, Dallas. Nice try. But the problem was the Selbitz trick was a huge success. But when word of the trick got to the US, just a brief description of it and a brief description of the title, it was picked up by an American magician named Horace Golden. And Horace Golden quickly built his own version of it and registered it with the National Vaudeville Association and rolled it out over the United States. So before Selbit could get on a boat and bring it to the United States, there were already prominent copies of it. And the golden version was a very, very successful copy. In fact, some might say an improvement, some might say a cheaper version of it, but it was incredibly successful in the marketplace. And what Horace Golden invented was the thing that now most of the audience will have in the back of their minds. That sort of cliche of a box where someone's feet is sticking out one end and their head is sticking out the other end, and then you saw in the middle. Golden patented that illusion in an effort to protect it, probably because there was a guilt in that he had put this together and it wasn't really his original idea. He was very anxious to patent the invention because the invention was distinct and was different than what Selbit was doing. And so Golden patented the invention. And that was the big war, was how much protection Golden had. Could he prevent Selbit from coming over and doing it? Could he prevent other performers from doing cheaper versions of it? And of course, the instant problem was publishing that patent. By having been granted that patent, all the drawings of it existed. And any magician for the cost of a patent, which was at that time a couple of dollars, I think, could instantly get a little drawing of how it worked. And they could build it themselves and put it in their show. I suppose the idea of the patent of it, Jim, gives over the bare bones of how the technology of the illusion works. But that's not the illusion. What that person does with it is the thing. A deck of cards is a deck of cards, but it's what I do with the deck of cards. That's where the magic is. Right. And I think this is kind of why the patent process doesn't serve magic well. What people don't calculate is that it's not an invention, it's a performance. How much of it is the invention? Is it 10% the invention and 90% the performance? And of course, there was a period of time, sometime in 1923, when every magician calculated, no, no, it's 95% this box. I will build the box in the patent, and I will have 95% of the success of this trick. 
And of course, that's what got wildly out of control because what you had was a lot of people who just kind of ruined it. So what did Selbert think about all this? You said there was a war. Were they aware of each other? And They were professional associates. I don't know that they ever really appreciated each other's distinctions in style, but they were professional associates. Selbert was a writer about magic, and so he wrote about Golden and knew him. This absolutely was a problem because, of course, now there were suddenly lawsuits and challenges between both of them. And what Selbit was trying to do was to make a living and perform his trick. Selbit came over to the United States, performed it, put out franchises of other performers doing it, did it in vaudeville, made money, and got back on the boat and was done. I think he saw how exhausting this was and how tiresome it was because he was served lawsuits in the United States and they tried to stop him performing it. And he said, rightly so, you know, this is my idea. Golden, unfortunately, not only was kept busy jumping in and out of the courts, but he didn't stop trying to stop Selbit. He stopped at trying to stop anyone, any other magician who put together a version of it. And I would say it's safe to say that Golden wasted a lot of time and wasted a lot of money in the courts. And the end result is that it wasn't successful for him. So what happened? Did every magician then go out and perform this trick? I just want to get a sense of how it changed magic being performed at that time. Like How revolutionary was that? Of course, not every magician went out and did it. But yes, for two years, I would say, and 1922 and 1923, it just roared through vaudeville. And there were really sophisticated, clever, inventive, ingenious, down to the details of how these boxes were constructed and how the routine was staged. There were wonderful versions of it, like the one done by Golden, like the one done by his associate, very popular American magician, Howard Thurston. And those were really sophisticated and were masterful performances. And they were incredibly successful. But every vaudeville theater wanted a poster up saying Song of Woman in Half. And I think it's safe to say that almost every vaudeville theater found a magician willing to do it because they could buy one, they could find the secret somewhere, they could take it to a carpenter, they could have it built. And so before you knew it, there were all sorts of, I would now say, crummy copies of it, which were not very sophisticated, which were not very deceptive which were in the hands of not polished performers. And so very quickly, these were all over the place. And within a couple of years, it had sort of played itself out. Presumably, the tricks like that would have a much greater longevity. I sort of wonder about magic now and YouTube and online. Anyone who wants to find out how a trick is done can just YouTube it and find out. But presumably back in those days, the illusion would last a lot longer because people wouldn't have seen it before. It's a really interesting question. And what you're presuming is that if the trick doesn't fool anyone, it's no longer of any value. And I would say that that's a very flexible construction in the world of magic. The trick was so successful and was so popularized that by the early 1930s, there were ads for cigarettes on magazines, a little ad campaign that was called It's Fun to Be Fooled, It's More Fun to Know, where they would talk about popular secrets. And their popular secrets were magic secrets. And so the little thing about the cigarettes was, hey, wouldn't you like to know how this trick is done? And they would publish the secret on a magazine. And so, yes, the Sawing in Half was actually published. The secret was being published on the backs of magazines in America. And of course, Golden went to court to try to stop that as well, because he was convinced that that was ruining his illusion. It's interesting that it never actually stopped it being successful in the hands of great performers. That's the key thing. It's in the hands of great performers. Like Penn and Teller, of course, famously would explain how magic works to a point but because they're such good performers, you are still captivated by what they do. Yes. And I think that that was the secret of it. Thurston used to step on stage and perform the song in half and say, I'm sure you've read in a magazine how this trick is done. And you probably think that there are two girls and you think that one of them plays the feet and one of them plays the head. And I want to show you that none of that's true. And then he opened up the apparatus and showed it and brought up a committee to examine it and did 
five or six things that didn't make any sense at all to people who knew how it was done and then did the illusion. And magicians who knew, insiders knew, that he was doing basically the same illusion that Golden was doing. But he was so confident in the abilities of a showman to bring it across and to pull the audience in the wrong direction and to misdirect them kind of with their own logic. By having them come and anticipate certain things and then showing them they were wrong, he could start a whole other level of deception. And that's really the way that that trick was kept going in the hands of other performers. I mean, after the Soaring in Half cabinet, where did magicians go from there? Was there a kind of race on, a kind of arms race of magicians trying to come up with the next great illusion? And Well, there was an arms race, first of all, within the idea of Sawing the Woman in Half, because there were versions of it that were altered and improved and developed. And within a few years, Golden had another version, which was also taken from another performer, in which he sawed a woman in half with a buzzsaw without a box. So that all that suspicion of who else is hiding in the box and how is she moving out of the way, all of that was taken away by just putting the lady on the table and then having a buzzsaw blade cut through her. So it inspired a lot of really creative thought because, of course, once it had been established there was a market for that sort of trick, there were different versions of it. There was the version of it that might work in a vaudeville stage. There was a version of it that might work in a nightclub. There was a version of it that someone could do in their own show with ropes, just passing something through somebody so that you gave the effect that someone had been cut in half. So it inspired a lot of creative thought among magicians. And it also led to a bunch of other illusions, which were the logical steps. Selbit was convinced for years, you can see, that those kind of torture illusions were the next ticket. And so he developed a number of illusions, spikes through a lady, bayonets through a lady, cutting a lady into different sections. In the sort of pantheon of illusions in the history of magic, where does the soaring in half come? Well, it goes right to the top of the list, I'd say, for many, many reasons, because there have been very few illusions in magic that became a roaring popular success in one moment. There are illusions that were successes in the hands of one or two particular performers, but there have been very, very few illusions that could be rolled out across a country or around the world and bring people to the theater because they were so successful. And Part of that is the image that it creates in your head. By simply saying, sawing a woman in half, you have that image that reinforces what you want to see. But it's also at the top of the list because it's probably brought more ingenious thought, more invention, more creativity, more presentational thought, more writing, more development than almost any other illusion in the field of magic. Tell me where we are with magic now. What's exciting you in the world of magic? Who is exciting you? What are the illusions that you think are really spectacular at the moment? Well, it's very interesting. And like you say, it's cyclical in that there are waves and fashions in magic. And there always have been. Again, that's sort of what happened in the 1920s is there was this crashing interest in big stage illusions and the magicians were there right at the right time for it. I think that the recent trends, this kind of going smaller and going underground in magic has been really interesting. But it also, like everything else, it opens up the opportunities to come back in different ways and in different forms. There are still people doing stage illusions and developing different formulas for them. And they're interesting. Audiences love it and they don't see it as much now. You don't have the Paul Daniels show. You don't have the magic specials on television that roll those boxes across the stage. And so it's really an opportunity to reinvent all of that and bring it to new audiences who haven't seen anything like that before. It's a good time to be developing new material as well. I think it is. And, you know, I don't know about you and technology, but how sort of technology, the digital age, woven itself into the fabric of illusions? Do people now use iPads, computers, iPhones, the stuff around us, if you like? Yeah. So the simple answer is yes. And the slightly more complicated answer is that they use it much less than you think they use it. 
because technology still terrifies everyone. You don't actually want to be standing on stage performing and then suddenly realize that something's powering down or that there's a problem with something. But I would say the other thing that happens is that the first thing that pushes through the door is performing with that technology. So what that means is magicians now do amazing tricks with your cell phone. They borrow your cell phone and do things with it. They do tricks with iPads. They do tricks all playing with your knowledge of technology. So you understand technology works on a certain level, and the magician subverts that and is showing you something amazing about it. So this thing that you're holding in your hand for hours every day, this thing that you seem to know everything about, is suddenly working against you and is doing something magical. And that's a whole new formula that's been developed as well. You still can't beat a deck of cards. Jim, we'll get you back on. I want to at some point talk to you about the bicycle deck, about a deck of playing cards and why bicycle became the playing cards of magicians, but maybe another time. I just want to say a huge thank you for coming on and talking to us about the soaring and half illusion. It's been terrific to have you on. It's such an honor to have you on. You're such a legend in this world. So it's a real honor. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Dallas. It's been fun. Thanks. So there we go. We've done an episode of Magic. Hope you enjoyed that. Hope you found it interesting. If you are planning ladies and gentlemen, to saw your spouse or better half in half, it might be worth Googling first to learn how to do it properly. Don't just run off into the woodshed and grab the nearest hacksaw. It takes skill. It takes a little bit of inside knowledge. But have a go. Thank you very much for your company. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'll see you next time. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.